Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today, we'll be digging into some healthcare sector trends, specifically insurers fleeing the Obamacare exchanges and some issues around the federal scheduling of marijuana. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and joining me via phone is Motley Fool healthcare contributor Todd Campbell. It's August 17th, which, Todd, did you realize that it is Portola Day? I did, actually. I have been watching all day long the news feed. So one of my favorite biotech stocks is called Portola Pharmaceuticals. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard us do a deep dive on it. And even though that's not what we're going to talk about today, there's a very important decision coming out about one of Portola's lead drugs today, whether or not it gets approved by the FDA. So I've just been refreshing my internet feed all day long looking for this announcement. Me too. And it's going to be a big deal for Tola one way or the other, and obviously for shareholders. So if, uh, if you've been following us here on the show, and you know, this is definitely a day to, to punch it up and, and see whether or not it's good news or bad news day for them. Yeah, I'm excited. But like I said, that's actually not what we're going to talk about today, particularly because we don't have the decision yet. But uh, our first topic of the day is Obamacare. So Aetna, which is one of the major health insurers, announced yesterday that it plans to cut its Obamacare exchange presence by about 70%-ish. It was present in 778 counties, and now it's cutting back to just 242 counties. What does that mean for Aetna and for Obamacare? We have, a, a, it's a, I guess, a good old-fashioned back-alley brawl here uh, between insurance companies in Washington. And there's a lot of backstory, Christine, that you and I are going to talk about for our listeners uh, that I think is pretty fascinating. But the, you know, the nuts and bolts of this is that you've got um, insurers participating on the exchanges through Obamacare that are losing money. And obviously, that's not what companies are in the business to do. So, uh, as a response to that, um, Aetna is the latest company of these insurers that to say, you know what, we're going to rein in significantly our participation, as you before, significantly reducing uh, the number of um, counties that we participate in, and significantly reducing the number of states that we're going to do business in. Aetna's taking their exposure to the exchanges down to four states uh, from, I think, 15. Right. And that's because they reported, well, there are kind of two reasons here. The first that you touched on is because they just haven't been profitable, these exchanges. Aetna reported a loss of $230 million on Obamacare in the second quarter. They cite rising utilization, which really what that gets at is Obamacare patients are just more expensive than anybody was anticipating. None of these health insurers realized just how difficult it would be to price these plans properly in order to actually make money on the exchanges. And so what you're seeing now is this mass exodus from them where they're throwing their hands up and saying, we don't want to keep losing money on this. And so when you look at a company that's losing money, they have really, it boils down to two options. You can either cut your costs or bring in more money. So if you're going to, to bring in more money, that that's you know, you need to actually raise the prices of of your plans. Um, but the other option there, and this is the other uh, issue at heart here, is what happens if these companies decide to try to team up and maybe lower their costs via some synergies, uh, via some mergers? And that is the other really interesting side of the story. 
Right. You had Aetna um, specifically looking to combine with Humana. And Humana, that they, Humana is another insurer. They do have a huge Medicare business, uh, but they were also participating in 19 uh, states' um, exchanges in, you know, for Obamacare. Uh, and the thinking was that, okay, if we leverage all of this size against fixed costs, you know, get rid of um, overlapping positions and the like, then, you know, we're able to turn more easily a profit. You know, Aetna had said previously earlier this year that it expected to break even on its Obamacare business. It had actually even indicated that it could expand into more states, going from 15 states, I think it was, to 20 states. Uh, so this is a fairly rapid uh, deterioration in their risk pool. I mean, you talked about, you know, how do you price these plans and charge the premiums so that you can turn a profit if you don't really know how healthy uh, your members are going to be. And it's been very much a struggle to try and get healthier, younger patients uh, to sign up for Obamacare. Uh, obviously, the people who signed up originally were those who were the sickest because, you know, they needed insurance. And that's that's great. And that's, I don't think that's what these companies are saying is that they don't deserve to have access to care. I think what they're trying to say is, listen, we need to find a way to be able to make this profitable for ourselves and our investors. Um, no one's going to cry any tears, though, Christine, for these companies over their their lack of profitability in in the in the bigger picture, right? Though shareholders might. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Investors will always look at it from the perspective, okay, what where they have a tendency sometimes to look at it from the perspective of what have you done for me lately, and they look at the profitability of each of these companies on a quarter to quarter basis. Um, I think an argument could be made for long term investors to look at it and say, well. Isn't it better to continue to participate in these exchanges even if they're operating at, at manageable losses as long as uh, the end game suggests that you know, you'll reach that scale where you've got the right profit, um, right premium for whatever care those patients are going to need. So there's two ways of looking at that. The, the short-term view of saying, okay, yeah, but if we stop participating in these programs right away, I can add $300 million to my bottom line in 2017 versus, okay, well, now I'm no longer getting the experience of operating in these markets, um, experience that could be you know, beneficial if these turned out to be very profitable markets, say, five years from now because of policy changes or, or anything else. I mean, I think Aetna did have that kind of long-term view. I mean, they wouldn't have continued to be in these markets, and, and they wouldn't have planned on expanding their presence on the exchanges if they didn't have that sort of long-term mentality. But which begs the question, right, Christine? What's changed? Exactly. Yeah, that that's your big but here. So the Department of Justice sued recently to block Aetna's proposed merger with Humana which was a key part of Aetna's strategy. And I'm quoting right from their Aetna's CEO here. He says, and he, before he had been talking about how they had been on the public exchanges since the beginning of 2014, they had been losing money, blah, blah, blah. So he goes on to say, and I quote, our ability to withstand these losses is dependent on our achieving anticipated synergies in the Humana acquisition. And then he goes on to say, essentially, if the DOJ blocks this transaction, they're going to be forced, their hands are tied, they're going to be forced to reduce their exchange footprint. Which might be true, but I think the even more interesting reason behind this is that that's them playing this strategic game with the Department of Justice, saying, yeah. you know, you don't really want to block this merger. 
Yeah, it's the throwing the gauntlet down almost and saying, listen, we, we actually will consider expanding um, into more markets if you okay this deal because we think that you know we can better afford um, um, to operate within you know the the exchanges as a combined entity. But if you block it, if you block it, then who knows how this is all going to play out? I, I think there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on here. You have to remember that you know even despite the the drag on earnings from the exchanges last quarter, um, Aetna remains you know nicely profitable. I think they their net net income was about 800 million. Um, you know actually if you look at United. Humana and Aetna and combine their net income over the course of the, the second quarter, and it comes out to about $2.8 billion, um, despite the ACA headwinds. You know, there could also be not only this, this uh, undercurrent of quid pro quo, uh, you, you pass my deal and I'll, ex- I'll expand my exchanges, uh, but it could also have something to do with the fact that part of the, uh, the risk corridors and the reinsurance provisions of the ACA that have actually been smoothing um, the profitability across the industry, those are expiring at the end of this year. So they're looking at 2017 and they're saying, okay, we're not going to get the benefit of reinsurance and risk quarters, which again have been smoothing profitability across the industry. Um, and that means there's a lot of uncertainty regarding you know, how we should be pricing our plans for next year. Why take on that uncertainty um, if the DOJ isn't going to work with us on, um, on, I guess, leveraging our a bigger footprint. Todd, can you remind our listeners what exactly the risk corridor was? Sure. Risk corridors, basically what the risk corridors do is they collect money from plans that are profitable, okay, those plans that have had extraordinary, unexpectedly high gains, and then they redistribute those to the plans that had unexpectedly high losses. Um, It was a, a way of, I guess, helping to rein in the need to price these plans at such a high level to guarantee profitability. Basically, it was the way for Washington to say, listen, we want you to participate and we're going to provide a little bit of it, of insurance to the insurers to make sure that you don't lose your shirt by, by being part of the exchanges. Exactly. So before we move on to the second part of our show, I want to bring it back to our investing takeaway and that that's what we're doing this show for. Todd, what do you think, looking at this recent news and everything going on with the Department of Justice and these proposed mergers, how should an investor be looking at this? I think that United Healthcare probably is of of the companies that have said that they're going to um, walk away is probably the one with the, the least question marks, only because it doesn't have the DOJ overhang. You know, if these deals get scuttled by the DOJ, um, Aetna is going to have to pay. A breakup fee, uh, and you know, so that's a drag on earnings. Then there's the uncertainty of, well, you know, how will all of this these changes shake out? I don't know. I, th- I think it's best for most investors to avoid these names until we get a little bit more clarity. Um, if you're really interested in insurance, maybe focus instead on some of the Medicaid players or some of the other stuff rather than the commercial insurers. Sounds good. Okay, so as promised, moving on to the second half of our show today, we want to talk a little bit about marijuana and its federal scheduling, meaning how the federal government classifies the drug. So last Thursday, there was some news that came out that the Drug Enforcement Agency will keep marijuana as a Schedule One substance, meaning that there are no accepted medical uses and a high potential for abuse. 
this comes on the heels of a push to get marijuana rescheduled to Schedule 2, which would mean that it still has a high potential for abuse, but it does have accepted medical uses. And so, in in the press release, the DEA cited that the drug's chemistry is not necessarily known, it's not reproducible, there aren't enough studies out there on its safety, there aren't enough studies proving its efficacy, and essentially the evidence just isn't there to support reclassification. What do you think, Todd? This is something that you and I have talked about a lot. People who listen to our show understand, I guess, the value of of highly controlled scientific trials, right? I mean, the ability to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that the reason that someone's getting an improved outcome is because of whatever they are taking. And absent that kind of proof, uh, and unfortunately the the FDA's uh, review of the information that they have available to it uh, was unable to, to, to find that proof. Absent that proof, the HHS could not go to the DEA and say, yeah, we think that there's um, a truly a medical benefit associated with taking marijuana that's scientifically provable, uh, and that really put the DEA in a box because marijuana is listed in the single convention of narcotic drugs, an international treaty. It has to be either Schedule One or Schedule Two, and the only difference between Schedule One and Schedule Two is that has a matter, you know, the, the having a medical use component of it. So DA kept it <clears throat> at Schedule One, um, and unfortunately, that deals a little bit of a blow to you know marijuana policy advocates who really uh, have been doing a very good job of, um, I guess, moving the ball forward as far as decriminalizing marijuana and, and increasing the the ability to use it nationwide. And I'd like to point out. A bit of a catch-22 going on here, which actually was made clear to me by one of our other Motley Fool healthcare writers, Corey Renauer. He noted that the DEA based this decision on a recommendation from the HHS, which based its recommendation on an FDA review that cited the lack of available evidence to determine that marijuana in its natural state has an accepted medical use. And this lack of available evidence cited by the FDA is a direct result of marijuana's Schedule One status, which is enforced by the DEA. It's like you've got this cycle here where until you can get better evidence on marijuana, you can't loosen the restrictions on it. But it's really, really hard to study it, particularly in its natural form, because of its scheduling. Right. It's Schedule One, which means that you have to get it from one grow facility, a grow facility down, I think it's in Mississippi. Um, you have to comply with all sorts of regulations on the storage of it. You get recording of it, how you use everything. I mean, all of these roadblocks that are put up to the sci- against the scientific research into its benefit. And of course, that means that, you know, uh, nonprofit um, researchers, those at universities and such, uh, are less likely to embrace that kind of um, uh, research than, say, for-profit companies <clears throat> that maybe have deeper pockets and access to you know, capital via stock offerings and the like. Right. And interestingly, they are actually expanding the number of DEA-registered manu- marijuana manufacturers. Previously, there was just one, as you had mentioned. Um, but now, hopefully, there should be a couple more coming on board. And so, that is a slight relaxing of the restrictions, but... Right. It's like the DEA said, listen, we can't give you what you want, but maybe we can meet you halfway. And if we can provide more supply, um, then maybe that tears down or breaks down some of these barriers to research. Although, 
you know, looking around and talking to people who are doing the research, it doesn't necessarily seem to be that the, the supply is the, the biggest issue that's preventing that. So I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. We also have another entire different dynamic at play here because after the announcement came out of the DEA, uh, spokespeople for Hillary Clinton, who, as everyone knows, is running for president, have come out and said that if she's elected, she would make it a Schedule II uh, drug. So that throws a whole nother, opens a whole nother can of worms, if you will. Right. And Clinton has also referred to the laboratories of democracy, states' rights argument, saying basically we should let states figure it out for themselves, the states where it's currently legal. And after we have a little bit more evidence on what actually happens within a state when you have either medical or recreational or both legalized, then where do we go from there? Right. And the other thing that the FDA did on this, just I don't want to forget about this. The other thing that the DEA did is when they were talking to the FDA, the FDA came out and said, OK, well, we can't set, show you that there's there's proof that that marijuana is helpful. But what we can do um, is provide a little bit of guidance toward uh, researchers and how they should design their future studies. Um, and they offered up some some different insight, including you know making sure that any studies that get done from here, uh, they're not dosing marijuana via smoking. They're using either tinctures or some other way of being able to evaluate it. Um, so yes, it seems like the ball moved slightly forward, uh, but you certainly didn't get a first down. So I think it's also important to go back and say, all right, why are we talking about this to begin with on Industry Focus, which is primarily an investing-focused show? Um, so, the marijuana industry sounds like it would be really lucrative for investors. There's research out there that estimates 30% annual growth in the cannabis industry for the rest of the decade. Legal marijuana sales hit an estimated $5.4 billion in 2015. This trend looks poised to continue, with 58% of respondents to a Gallup poll supporting nationwide legalization. So, I totally understand why you have investors out there salivating at the prospects of getting in on this industry. But are there right. this any. Would be, this would be like us talking about alcohol during prohibition, right? What would happen if they repeal prohibition? Uh, you know, and of course, we ended up with huge companies, uh, Coors and Budweiser and the like, that were investment worthy, if you will. Exactly. And we do currently have a couple of companies that are operating legally and are in this industry. But of course, it is very much also a speculative industry at this point. It's a wild west. I, I, I wouldn't recommend any investor goes out as a, um, a marijuana stock per se. There are two drug makers that are doing FDA um, quality research. In conducting programs, and those are GW Pharma is one of them, and Insys Therapeutics is the other. Uh, those are two companies that investors can consider. They have pros to them and cons to them, but those are at least are two real companies uh, with you know real potential chances uh, to get FDA products approved that are based on marijuana and be able to generate revenue and profitability someday down the road. And Insys, I'll point out, is not primarily focused on marijuana. GW Pharmaceuticals is pretty much your only bet if you want a pure play marijuana stock that's not trading on the pink sheets for pennies. Right. They're doing research into the use of CBD, which is a uh, chemical co com compound found within 
the marijuana plant. Uh, CBD has been demonstrated in early and now in some late stage trials to be very helpful in the use of um, controlling epilepsy, uh, epileptic seizures and epilepsy patients. Um, there could be a filing for FDA approval of this drug um, as early as 2017. We'll have to continue to keep an eye on them, but you're right. They are the only pure play uh, company of substance that I think investors ought to consider. But of course, there's all sorts of other risks there, right? They're not profitable yet. They, you know, they're, they're spending money uh, on this research and they've yet to, nothing to show for it yet. Of course. Interestingly, I think this DEA ruling could actually benefit uh, GW Pharmaceuticals. So, when you think about Epidiolex, it is made from this liquid form of of something that you extract from marijuana. And so, it's not just here take take the marijuana leaves and and smoke them. Like it's completely other side of the the ballpark from that. So. If the DEA had announced that all of a sudden everybody can start studying marijuana in its natural form and in a smoked form, something like that, then you could potentially get these studies coming out saying that marijuana in its natural state is just as good as Epidiolex, and that would destroy its pricing power. So this is actually right, kind why of not good go out news. and buy Charlotte's Web at a, dis- at a dispensary rather than have it to get prescribed um, uh, Epidiolex from your doctor. Exactly. Yeah, I, I thought that was another interesting element of this story. So that's pretty much going to do it for today's episode of Industry Focus. Remember that we have our Investing in Pet Healthcare show coming up, and we're looking to feature your voice on the show. Leave us a message at 866 677 3665, which is 866 Mrs. Fool. And tell us your best why I had to take my pet to the vet story, or leave us a tip about saving money on pet health care. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Christine Hargis, and on behalf of myself and Todd Campbell, thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!